This week on A Lively Experiment, it's the day many of us have waited for, but not everyone is embracing an easing of COVID restrictions. And controversy surrounds the Providence school system again. We'll have the latest. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Wendy Schiller, Chair of Brown University's Political Science Department. Jim Vincent, President of the Providence Branch of the NAACP. And former State Representative Dan Riley. Hello, everyone. It is great to be back with you taping this week from our studios for the first time in 14 months. Our return mirrors what is going on here in Rhode Island and nationally. An easing of restrictions that includes gathering size, going back to the office and mask wearing. Governor McKee spoke about it at his weekly briefing on Thursday. So I think tomorrow is the tomorrow that uh, many, many people across our state have been waiting for uh, since the pandemic began. Tomorrow, Rhode Island, with a few exceptions, will be reopened. Uh, the plexiglass is coming down, and most establishments will be at full capacity. Uh, casinos will be open uh, as we, we knew them. Restaurants will be bustling. Nightclubs will start to be meeting places once again. It's about the fact that we've reached that 1 million shots and continue to vaccinate all age groups, including the 12 to 15 year old, that we're comfortable uh, in making, taking these steps. And uh, just now, we have 70.1% of Rhode Islanders 18 and over with at least one vaccine shot. Just as it was uh, a uh, getting used to wearing the masks over the last years, and certainly people were more comfortable sooner than others, it's going to be the same thing in reverse. It doesn't matter whether we did it today, three weeks from now, four weeks from now. There's going to be that, uh, that um, you know, that it's going to be a transition. And, and so let's respect people during that transition. Another milestone that we had on Thursday, it was our last meeting for reporters, COVID briefing at the vets. You know, we were there for social distancing, and then we're going to be back in the state house in a couple of weeks. Wendy, let me begin with you. There is going to be this transition. Even if some people are fully vaccinated, maybe they're going to do with the masks. I think it's going to take a little bit of getting used to after a year of wearing masks. I think everybody in Rhode Island worked really hard. I think uh, we had good moments. We had some really scary moments with the surge. And I think people were, were generally respectful. And we've had a terrific turnout for the vaccine. So now Rhode Islanders have to sort of do that in reverse, maintain that same level of patience and tolerance. Some people will want you to wear a mask when you go into a business or a store. And some people won't. Some people next to you in a restaurant may have a mask on. So, you know, you live with it for a while till we all get, you know, the same kind of comfort level. It might take a long time. Hey, I think we've done fine. I mean, this has been, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I think that, you know, the, the next few months is going to be interesting because of the ambiguity of, in terms of mask mandates or no masks, depending on where you are. But I think that we've all gotten along pretty well, and I think that uh, we're going to we're going to work this out. Um, you know, I think there are people that are going to continue to wear their masks, and I think that's fine. You know, there shouldn't be any mask shaming. Uh, and there's other people who are going to be wondering, well, you know, do I have to really have a 
I have card to show that I'm fully dosed to go into this place. But I think we're going to work it out. I, I, I'm optimistic, and I don't think it's going to be any major problems. I think at this point, the, the faster we get to the point where you can, where businesses don't have mandates really of any kind on them and people are allowed to freely put a mask on or not, I think is the place that most people want to be at. What we do know is now with the vast majority of the population having at least one dose of the vaccine, we know that our hospitals are in good shape. We don't have a surge of, of new cases coming in that are really flooding our resources. So people can go out without a mask if you're vaccinated. Businesses can allow them in. And if people do get sick at some point, which will happen, you know, we're not at zero and you're not going to get to zero, um, we have the ability to care for people. And then if people continue to, you know, they have uh, underlying health conditions that would put them at risk, then they should take particular precautions for them. Uh, but at this point, I think the larger danger to society has subsided with the vaccinations and the precautions we've taken to date. And now we have to get back into, into reopening mode here. Jim, we talked the last time you were on when we were still doing Zoom about hesitancy. You've worked a lot. I see you on social media a lot with uh, one of the doctors encouraging uh, vaccines. We seem to have hit that plateau. And the Journal had an article the other day that the estimate from the Department of Health is 13 percent of the population may just never get it for whatever reason. Do you think the masks coming off is going to help or hurt to get the people who may be hesitant? I don't think it's going to be a factor one way or the other. I think that uh, there are some people that are hesitant for reasons that uh, are beyond the mask. And we, as a community, are still meeting on a weekly basis to make sure that people that haven't been vaccinated have full access and also to get the education that we think they need in order to make sure that uh, they, they know it's safe and uh, it's available and they should do it. Because if we're ever going to get to herd immunity, it's going to take all of us to be vaccinated, not just some of us. And then there's the issues of the colleges. We were talking about this off camera before. Your mm -hmm. own school, Brown, just made the decision. So, and then there's a whole public-private thing. It's going to be an interesting discussion as we head into the fall. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are legal questions. You know, you look at uh, Georgia State, for example, isn't requiring any uh, vaccinations. They're not, you're not even allowed to ask if anybody's been vaccinated. Brown University and a lot of schools in Rhode Island have said, you, if you want to work here or study here, you, on campus physically, you have to be vaccinated. Uh, and they're asking, but not necessarily requiring you to show proof of vaccination. So I, I think that this is going to be a regional problem because Rhode Island, of course, we hope this summer will have lots of tourism, right? Lots of people come to Rhode Island. It's a beautiful state. Now you're going to have people coming from all over the country, potentially. You don't know if they're vaccinated or not, which is even more the reason why Rhode Islanders themselves should want to get vaccinated to be protected because we just don't know what that influx will do uh, once summer comes. What about that legally? That's a big question that people have had. I know public versus private. I think a private business can pretty much do what it wants, but there may be some sticky legal questions going forward. It's being litigated now. I mean, the most on-point cases uh, have result has been dealt with vaccination for other communicable diseases in the past. Courts have held that it is it, uh, an employer can require that of employees. If you have, if there's a vaccine against a communicable disease, they have an interest in wanting to keep their workplace free of that. They can make that a condition of employment. As far as I know, there as far as I know, there isn't an actual case on the COVID vaccine itself. I think there's a lot of uh, similarities in those cases. But the bottom line is, I think from a policy perspective and from you know what's just good practice perspective, if we're getting to the point where the vast majority of the population has received at least one dose and the cases are down, the deaths thankfully are are. are very well, you know, they're down to close to zero and the hospitals aren't surging with 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 patients. 
this requirement, this idea that a business has to require, an institution has to require people to be vaccinated in order for them to go about their daily business, I think is intrusive. And I don't think the public benefits clearly outweigh the liberty interests at stake. They're especially given the case count and the just the sheer number of people who are vaccinated. We're trying to chase down 13 percent. And, and I just don't I, I'm uncomfortable. And I you'd think rather use the carrot than the stick. Absolutely. And, and I think it's working. And I think that, you know, if you look at all the numbers, it's working where we are now. But does that make sense? Look at look at what Ohio is doing. Look at what Maryland is doing. Ohio has a lottery. Five people can win a million dollars each if they get vaccinated. They get entered into this lottery. Maryland is, I think, from now until the middle of June, forty thousand dollars a day for one person who gets vaccinated. You just go get vaccinated. You could, be, you know, enter in and get forty thousand dollars. The vaccine lottery. So now our tax dollars, because that's tax dollars. Those lottery dollars, our tax dollars across the country are going to bribe people who are reluctant to get the vaccine. So. In in that case, I'm not in favor of that. I think that's not a good use of public money. Um, but I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I, I, I'd be much more comfortable with your position six months from now than I am now because we don't know about the variants. We don't know if this virus will regain strength. I think six months from now, we'll have a very good idea of how effective the vaccine is. I agree with I agree with Wendy. I, I'm much more concerned about the public uh, interests in terms of health. Uh, you know, freedom is fine, but, you know, my public health interest, I think, is going to supersede the, uh, the freedom uh, concerns that you have. If it's that big of a concern, then the institution should privately on their own decide not to reopen then. That's the bottom line. But then you have the governor of Texas saying, <laughs> ordering that even if you want to have somebody wear a mask in your business, that you can't do it. I mean, so there's a little bit of insanity going on on both sides, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a business, let's say the owner of the business has compromised immune system and doesn't want to and is already vaccinated but is concerned and wants to do their business but is prevented by government from taking safe precautions you know texas is texas but i think this is federalism this is what we've seen really dramatically in covid how different states have taken on this and we have also natural immunity and non-natural immunity natural vulnerability not natural vulnerability so people are physically built differently no matter where they live so it's been a really huge challenge to figure out the civil liberties part versus the public health part. Just quickly before we move on, were you surprised by the CDC's announcement a week ago? I was on a plane, my first trip in a year, and I got off, you know, you land and everybody bing, 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 and it said CDC releases all, you know, brings back the mandates, and then of course Governor McKee. When you saw that, were you were you surprised that they said, it, it seemed to me anyway, they went a little bit farther than I expected, and it caught the White House off guard. I was going to say, I wasn't surprised at the White House, I think, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised in the sense that I thought it made sense. I, I mean, I, I didn't disagree with the premise of it right. and what they were saying. I thought this makes sense. And this is what a lot of people who became critics for some reason, uh, and it became a political issue, had been saying for weeks that why are vaccinated, two vaccinated people standing outside in the open air having to wear masks, masks while talking to each other. And so I think that publicly a lot of people started talking about that and the CDC decided to catch up for whatever reason. I don't know why they weren't really coordinated on the messaging there, but I thought it made sense. Were you surprised? I was surprised uh, because it seemed like there was a contradiction. It was one way one, one week and then another way the next week. But my thing is that if, you, if you're not vaccinated at all and if you have only had maybe one vaccination, I'm not so concerned about your personal freedom. I'm, I'm concerned about you spreading the, the, the COVID to other people. I mean, you might not care about yourself, but care about your other uh, fellow citizens. And uh, so I'm still on the cautious side in terms of this whole thing. I want to make sure that, you know, we don't, in, you know, infringe upon people's freedoms. But I also think that there's a freedom for us to live. I mean, over 500,000 people, 500 million people have been killed by this disease. And we have to be mindful of that. Yeah. I, you know, I wonder a little bit 
if they got to a point where they realized that people who weren't yet vaccinated probably are starting to feel pretty comfortable because there's such a, a large percentage of people who are. So you're told, well, the numbers are down. This isn't as much of a threat. So you don't bother to go get vaccinated. But then the CDC says, oh, all, all masks are off. All bets are off. So now maybe it's a little bit less safe for you to run around if you're not vaccinated. So we could see, ironically, more people eventually getting vaccinated over the summer because we will see COVID still here. We will see people getting sick. Uh, which is unfortunate. And I think the people who haven't vaccinated may say, wait a minute, I want to be more protected. Now that nobody is, is basically protecting me by their own behavior, wearing a mask, uh, then I think maybe I better go get, get this done. So I'm curious what will happen by the end of the summer. All right. Two years ago, the uh, all the talk most of the summer was about the Providence school system and impending state takeover, the Johns Hopkins report. Remember all that? Just two years ago. Here we are, fast forward two years, and a lot of people are saying, have we made any progress? Of course, there's been a big issue with the superintendent in Providence, calls for his resignation should uh, in, uh, the commissioner stay. It's just sad because it feels like a lost two years. I realize a lot of this had to do with the pandemic, but what, what do we do with Providence again? Well, I mean, normally I'd say, let's, you know, let's plan the plan, let's work the plan and give it time to actually happen. I think the biggest problem with education, especially in Rhode Island, and when the state's involved, is that we lurch from plan to plan and idea to idea and superintendent to superintendent, and we never give time for a plan to actually stick and try to work. In this case, I don't know what the plan is. Um, you know, it's two years ago. Last year doesn't seem to really count, so it feels like it was only we had one year to gauge progress. I'm more concerned of the management failure of hiring someone with such uh, checkered history, why you would put them into an environment, even as an administrator, um, around school children, to me, is it creates a larger concern. If we're failing at that level, what are we going to get right? Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we're at a point where time's up. I think what I would like to see is that the commissioner rewrite that contract, and let's move on with it. Uh, Providence, because of the Hopkins report, we know is one of the worst public school systems in the country. It's been failing for 30, 40 years. We cannot continue to fail for another 30 or 40 years. What I'd like to say, similar to what Mayor Laws had, had just said, is for the commission to come in there, tear that contract up, and rewrite it so that we can actually get some significant change in the system. There has been some good things I'm hearing that have happened over the last few years, even with the pandemic, but I think that where, where you, it comes to uh, seniority and those kinds of issues, we have, we're never going to get meaningful change in a system where 92% of the students are of color and 80% of the teachers, well-intentioned, are white. We have to allow for more infusions of teachers of color in there, and it's only going to happen if you have the commissioner rewriting that contract in a meaningful way so we can have significant change in Providence. Time's up. I'm tired of talking about it. Let's move. And that was the whole deal when they came in. It said the state takeover is going to allow us to, my words, bang some heads. We're going to impose the contract. And I remember being at one of the briefings three or four months ago. They asked the commissioner, hey, where are we on contract? And she said, we're about 90 percent there. I mean, clearly that wasn't true. So what are the ups and downs of the state coming in? Because the contract is the big deal. The teachers have hung on to that. Why isn't this? Why do you? I know it's a crystal ball question. Why isn't the state just going in and invoking the Crawley Act and doing that? But I mean, I think we can we can talk about the contract. We can talk about the teachers, and I, I certainly think you know I, I heard a great expression, and I'd like to attribute it. You can't be what you you can't be what you can't see. 
So if you are in the private school system and you only look at people who are not of your background and you think, well, why would I be a school teacher? Can I be a school teacher? So there's all sorts of things that I think are terrific lend big credence to the idea that you want to have people who match people's backgrounds in the classroom with students at a young age. But it's also holistic. You know, a long time ago, I worked for a senator who said, listen, it's all about where they're living, the safety of their home, whether they're getting proper nutrition. Do they have a stable family life? These are all things that teachers can not fix. This is a community's issues that come into the classroom that teachers do their very best, I think, in a lot of cases, but can't fix all those things. So unless there's a broader plan, I don't know how many plans you adopt to fix the schools. You have to fix everything else about the schools. We have income inequality in Providence. You have to figure out how to make all of those things work together. And that's what we're not seeing. We're not seeing that from the state level or the, or the city level. You have those social ills, if not worse, in Newark, Detroit, Compton, the Bronx, the only difference between those communities and our communities is that those kids achieve higher academically. Why? They, because something's happening in those classrooms that's different. Something's happening in terms of uh, the, the, the administration of the buildings that is different. Maybe the school committees that is different. But when you look at apples to apples, we're failing, okay? You have communities that are poorer than ours doing better than us. So it's within that administration, it's the layering of, of, of school committees and city councils or whatever in the past, all that has to be changed. And what I'm saying is that studies have shown that when students of color have teachers of color in front of them, they do better. And in fact, some studies said that even white students, when there's teachers of color, they do better. So all, all of that agreed, but if you're going to school hungry or you've got uh, disengaged parents or, or well, single parents. you have to dodge bullets on the way to school. I, I agree, I agree right. with that. Of course that's going to be a disadvantage. I mean, I'm not minimizing that, but those things are in Chicago, Detroit, You would think they Newark. have that there too, yeah. They have all of that there and even worse, and those school systems are doing better. So you can't use that as a, as a reason because when you have the apples to apples comparison, Providence gets an F. What about legally go mm. going in and Im imposing the contract? Uh, do you get a sense of why they've hesitated doing that? Well, I think they're just trying to negotiate point by point. I think they're clearly not trying to impose something by fiat or else they would have done it a long time ago. Right. I, I think at the end of the day, complex problems don't always require really complex solutions. And I think they're getting really stuck in the mutiny. And I think that this is a great opportunity to provide Providence school uh, children with vouchers to be able to go to schools that actually work for them and their parents and cut the district down to size so it's more manageable because clearly, given the current breadth of what they're supposed to do every day, they're just not doing their jobs. Well, and, that's and going, no, and also infrastructure, right? So we know some of these schools are crumbling. Some of these schools are need to get yeah, rebuilt. Yeah, where was that rehab. big two hundred and fifty yeah. million dollars? Hope High School has had scaffolding for years. I'm not Providence. quite sure what they're doing. Yeah, and it's Breeze so, Providence right, High so School. When yeah. you think about that, so where you go to school matters in the physical condition of where you go to school. So these are and because we have a huge pension liability in the city of Providence that Mayor Lors has now come up with a new plan to try to uh, address through a uh, bond issue. I mean, that's a big looming problem, right? You're draining money from where you could put it, which is education or in, and infrastructure, um, and you, you're still stuck with that. And until you fix that, I think Providence is stuck. I'm not sure what they can do. I agree with all of that. However, where we're at now, the commissioner's got to rewrite that contract and be bold and take action. Time's up.
Yeah, but uh, so then there's also the question about vouchers, and then there's the whole charter schools question, right? Yes. With the legislature coming in and saying, oh, moratorium for three years. And it's an interesting dynamic going forward because that's been Governor McKee's baby over the years, right? So Yeah, he's walking a fine line on that. Yeah. Uh, and you have some success. With, but the idea is that funding has to get fixed, right? They've tried to remedy part of the problem with the funding. But if all of the money stays with the student and then that student goes to a charter school, then you are draining the public school infrastructure in certain communities even worse, which creates all sorts of problems that we just talked about. You have to fix that. You can't leave public schools who are in parts of the city that are not performing uh, physically in terms of infrastructure or capacity crippled because students are seeking better education. You're right. It but makes it more competitive. But if the school is half full because half those students left, now it's a totally different infrastructure question. We're not building a school for capacity that's twice what it actually is. That's true. And, and there has but to be... All of these other things will have to come into consideration if you do go down that path. If you have yes. quality public schools, there's no need for charter schools there's no need for any of these alternatives like vouchers. Are, charter schools can be quality public schools. But, but if you have quality public schools the way the traditional public schools have been before there were charter schools, there would be no need for charter schools. So let's get and focus on quality public schools, what, like a laser. Yeah, but, but that's like another generation. School? A lot of parents are like, I want it now. Well, yeah. and, and, I, and I understand that. And charter and, schools and, have and, some good practices where they have success that are public. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's sort of like magnet schools. People objected to magnet schools in the public school system, which are sort of specialized in arts and sciences or sciences and math or whatever they are, because they, you know, they can get distorted. But the point is, good practices and successful education should be emulated in the public sphere, no matter who's producing it. Exactly. I can't disagree with that. Exactly. Uh, but we have a kumbaya <laughs> moment here. Togetherness for once. But, but I, I have <laughs> to say, what's, I, I don't get hung up on uh, the owner of the school building itself. I think universal access to quality education for all students is the key. That's the important takeaway, for me at least. So whether that's happening in a, in a public, a straight out traditional public setting, whether that's happening in a charter school, whether that's happening in a private school funded with public publicly funded vouchers for that student, we're trying to accomplish the same goal, universal access to high quality public education for every student. All right, I want to get to a couple other things, but I don't want to short you on outrages or kudos. Mr. Vincent, do you have an outrage or a kudo? Actually, I'm going to give you my first kudo ever. Oh my goodness. Ever. We should have music for this. That's right. Where's the music? No, um, I was watching a, a news conference with Gene Valesini last summer, Sunday, and he said something that I thought was very positive, especially given the conversation we just had. He said, uh, I guess he was citing a study, and I can't remember the study that he cited, that Classical High School was not only number one high school in Rhode Island, but it was number 144 public schools in the country, and they had looked at 18,000 public high schools. Amazing. And it was 144 out of 18,000, number one in Rhode Island, classical high school in Providence. So that's certainly something to celebrate. And you'll have people say, well, it isn't what it used to be, but it's Doesn't still matter. catching. Yeah. 144th now. I don't care what it used to be. It's amazing. Out of 18,000 schools. So that's a kudo. And that's my first kudo. Oh, well, the, well, you caught me uh, speechless. <laughs> Dan, what do you have? Outrage or kudos? So it, it, it's neither but a quick uh, remembrance. Uh, mayor Joe Solomon Sr. yesterday, uh, from war, former mayor of Warwick, passed away. Um, I served with his son, uh, Joe Solomon Jr., in the house. Uh, great family, great Warwick family, and uh, just heart, heart goes out to them and, uh, you know, sympathies during a very difficult time. Yeah, and it was quick. I spoke to him for a story just a month ago. Sounded fine, but, you know sounding can be deceiving, and I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. Wendy, what do you have? Um, my outrage, of course, is gun violence uh, and constant gun violence all the time. Uh, we have uh, problems in Providence that I think we haven't seen kind of this spread of gun violence. Another 19-year-old lost their life last weekend. Like, it's just, 
constant now, and we're getting numb to it, even in Rhode Island. And we actually have a fairly low murder-by-gun rate compared to the rest of the country. I think we're in the top five of, of not having that as an issue. But clearly something's going on. Clearly we're having much bigger problems. And, you know, we have to try to be more aggressive about it. I'm not saying take somebody's legal gun away from them. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to understand that a lot of people die by accident or as casualties or collateral damage from the availability of guns. And we have to decide if we want to do something about that. Okay. Um, Jim Vincent, let me go back to you. The Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. Uh, I know you were on uh, the commission looking at it. We talked about this last time. As we get to the end of the, the semester, as we get to the <laughs> end, I was going to say semester, looking at you. As we get to the end of the session, I wonder, there's been this panoply of eliminated altogether as opposed to maybe some changes, whether you think anything substantial is actually going to happen. Well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so anything may happen. But my position is that I would like to see it fully repealed. I don't think we need it. It should be eliminated. 50 years ago, when police chiefs were suspending people for not wearing their hat right, you needed something like that because the unions wasn't as strong as they are now. In 35 other states in the country, you don't have a Leobor or, or a Policeman's Bill of Rights. But this is Rhode Island, Jim. But I don't care. We should not be an outlier. We have uh, only, we're the only state in New England. People say, well, you know, you can't treat uh, police uh, the same as uh, firefighters or, or teachers. And even if I bought that argument, well, then treat them the same as they do in Connecticut, police officers in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Not less but not better than either. So we don't need it. It's due process on top of due process. It's a waste. It's a layer that is not needed. And it, it just causes a, a glitch in the system where people that have not done the right thing as a police officer, they've not uh, done their badge or their oath, any service, get away with things for too long. It takes six months to go before a labor hearing, maybe another year before you go before the Superior Court on that appeal. It's just too long. No chief in Rhode Island can fire any police officer for anything in Rhode Island. The most they can give a police officer is a two-day unpaid Well, suspension. short of a felony conviction. Short of a felony conviction. So, so George, uh, Matthew Chauvin, if that happened in Providence, Chief Clemens, his immediate thing would not be to fire him, would be to give him a two-day unpaid suspension. Did they take, take a stab at this when you were in the House a couple of times, or was it kind of dormant? I mean, it's... Doing, I, some, re doing some tweaks or whatever to the law. Well, I'd say before the last year, uh, police officers' bill of rights typically would come up in the context of management versus labor, and um, police chiefs complaining that they had a true bad apple or they had a disciplinary problem, and it created a process problem, the time delays to actually get things done. And look, I think that there is an opportunity to, to tweak that and to change that. If it's harming the ability or, or impinging on the ability for the town to actually get rid of a true bad apple, let's make the appropriate changes. But I think in the day and age we live in, the Police Officer's Bill of Rights, the core concept of it is actually more important than ever. Protecting the private information and, and, and um, uh, the identity of police officers alleged to have uh, engaged in misconduct that hasn't yet been proven, I think is very important. Or else they're going to be doxxed on Twitter, which is what you're seeing in other places where you have to put a security detail around police officers' homes if they're alleged to have engaged in misconduct, even if they're cleared after the fact. That's just wrong. And, and I agree with the police unions in the sense that, you know, they do need to have those protections given the type of work they're in and given the nature of the complaints that are inevitably going to flow from what they do every day. Wendy, jump in and then I'll let Jim go. No, I, mean, I think I think one of the things that, that the principle behind this uh, is pre-body cameras. And I think for police officers now, body cameras can be the thing that exonerates them 
or the thing that confirms that they behaved badly, right? So we have a new layer of supervision for police officers, which works to their benefit or to their detriment, depending on what they've done. So in that sense, sort of the, 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 the arbitrariness of adjudicating police misconduct that you need a Bill of Rights for, if everybody has to wear a body cam, you can still interpret those events, but I think that's gonna change the whole dynamic. So I think police unions have to come to the table also and say, okay, we don't necessarily need all of these protections if we have body cameras, that's going to show what we've done and what we haven't. Final 30 seconds. If I bought all of that, every state in the United States would have a policeman's bill of rights, but only 15 states have it. 35 states don't have it. They don't need it. It's due process on top of due process. There's enough due process without it in Massachusetts and Connecticut, our neighboring states, so why have it? It's just Rhode Island having more layers to, to solve a problem that doesn't exist. All right, folks, we are once again the fastest 30 minutes in television. Great to be back here on the set, but it's not over yet. We have a couple of national issues to get to. So while the main program is over, go now to our online bonus segment, Lively Extra. We will have Dan and Jim and Wendy. Thank you. We'll be right back with an extra online bonus segment for the rest of you. Come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.